Uh, it's a wonderful privilege for me to be here this morning. I'll be really transparent and honest with you. If you'd asked me a year, year and a half ago um, that today would be happening, I would have not only told you that I didn't see it happening, I would have never known this would have happened, I probably would have also told you that I didn't want it. It wasn't really where I was and what I wanted. Um, I think it's worth the time this morning to take a few minutes just to tell you a little bit more about myself and how we got to this day today to be here. Uh, I grew up as a missionary kid. Uh, my parents were missionaries in Guatemala. I spent most of my childhood there. I didn't have the privilege of, uh, of growing up in Enid, Oklahoma, or graduating from even high, Enid High School, like some have the great privilege of doing, but we made it work, you know, we made it work. Um, and in fact, what's kind of crazy is that one of the members of our church who is a member uh, who attends first service actually went to the school that I went to uh, as an elementary kid in western Guatemala, not at the same time. He's much older than I am, but... Um, but we went to the same school. And after that, we came back, uh, I came back to the States, went to college at OBU. My wife and I met there, moved out to Arizona, got involved in student ministry there. About five, six years later, moved back to Oklahoma and became a collegiate minister, did BCM work at USAO. From there, I stepped into pastoral ministry. Um, first church I pastored was up in northeast Oklahoma in a town called Pryor. Uh, one of the things that's crazy is how many people here at PCBC um, are sort of like connections to my life. Uh, and uh, one of the members of my first church is actually a member here at, at PCBC that attends first service. Her, her husband was a deacon in our church. Uh, he passed away during my time there. A tremendous man. Had the honor of performing his funeral. After that... Um, Really, I, I kind of hit a point at that point where I was pretty burnt out. I was trying to do some heavy schooling. I was in PhD work. I was also trying to pastor and manage a pretty high-maintenance situation, new start with a lot of moving pieces, a lot of building. And uh, I, I burned out, and I needed a change. Moved back to the city area, began to pastor part-time a small church in Blanchard. The ministry platform shrunk, but that was a really, really important time in my life. Because that's where God began to do some work in my own heart that needed to be done. Selfish ambition that needed to be rooted out. Uh, realignment and focus on being a father, on being a husband, putting the priority on that that it deserved to be. And so those were refreshing, good years for me. Even in the midst of those years, though, the plan, the next step was always to church plant. God had put a desire in my heart years before that to do that. As I looked at just scripture and thinking about um, just how do we continue to move forward and trying to be the kind of people that God calls us to be? I felt like that was the road to take. And so after that time ended, I launched out and began planting a church. We had some obstacles there at the beginning. We had to pivot through some things, but we, we made some of those changes. We began to assemble a new core team. And, and just as things were beginning to really roll and move forward, and uh, feeling good, people were capturing the vision of what we were doing. I think we were starting to see some momentum. COVID hit, and we really weren't able to recover. We really weren't able to get people back together, and we had some key families that had to move and leave. And in the midst of that, I felt like God just began to say to me that it's not the right time, which I didn't really want to hear. I was committed to that. I wanted to do that. I was ready to do that for the rest of my life. And I was committed to the grind. It was all right if it was tough. We'll just work through it. Part of what I think God was doing during that season and why those things were happening was uh, our kids. 
uh, the lack of a student ministry. I could see God at work in their lives, but uh, student ministry had had a great impact in my wife's life and it had a great impact in my life. And um, I actually spent my middle school years back here in the States and had a youth pastor that had a real impact in my life. I felt a call to ministry during those years. And so I think both of us began to sense that maybe that's part of what God was doing. Well, anyways, long story short, God just dismantled all of it on his own. He didn't even need it. I didn't have to do anything. And he made it pretty clear that it was time to move on. And so I remember after our last service in 2020 at Easter, we woke up the next Sunday morning and we had to decide to go to church somewhere. I didn't know what was next for me, but at least this, this Sunday, we were just needed somewhere to go to church. We knew Brent and Amy Ross, Brent, our college pastor. Brent and Amy adopted Wyatt, whom we were Wyatt's foster parents before he actually moved in with them and became their adopted son. And so we thought, well, it's kind of close. We'll go there. Being really honest, I really kind of wanted a place that was big enough where hopefully I could hide. I didn't really want to tell people my story. I really didn't ask, hey, what are you doing here? I didn't want to talk about all of that. That did not work. All of these people that we knew, all the connections that we had here uh, that we discovered over the course of those first few weeks, um, that did not happen. But we came back the next week, and here we are a year and a half later, and we actually, actually never, ever visited another church. God just seemed to make this place feel like the right place. Uh, Noah connected with our student ministry immediately made friends. He's pretty good at that, but he connected and made friends really quickly. Luke did about as good as a 10-year-old, I think, can do, you know. Um, I remember him being pretty positive about Sunday school. I remember him telling me he really liked Brett Woods. He said, man, Brett is cool. He's like Clark Kent with blonde hair. <laughs> he was super pumped about, about Brett. I was happy. I mean, listen, I'll take that from a 10-year-old. Um, my wife had a chance to begin to get involved in the worship ministry of our church. She's got a tremendous voice, 20 years of ministry, no church that I'd served at, that I'd led, had used her in a praise band, PCBC did. God just used this congregation to bless my family. Bill and I began to talk and get to know each other a little bit. Uh, we had mutual friends. Uh, the first church that I pastored, I worked with someone that had uh, worked with him in Fort Smith. Uh, he knew my dad. And so we began to talk, and we began to talk about community bridges and some opportunities that, may, that were there. I said, let's walk down that path. Let's see. Eventually, when Sean left in January to take a position in, in Enid, um, Bill asked me if I'd be willing to come on as an interim. I was looking at a couple other options at that time, but the chance to be with my family was one that was attractive. And so I said yes. Really had no desire to... Anything from, for anything more permanent than just an interim, I was ready to continue to look for uh, something else. But over the course of this past spring, God really, I think, drew my heart to love this place, to love the team. I really grew to love and appreciate Bill and his vision and direction for what he wants PCBC to be. And I, I think God began to change my heart. I remember it was late April, and I, I remember just really clearly this sense of you need to talk to Bill. And that night I couldn't sleep. And usually when that kind of thing happens, it kind of is usually God. And so I went to Bill the next day and 
said, hey, man, I need to talk to you. We hadn't talked about anything. I, I didn't know what they were looking to hire. I didn't know where they were in the process. We hadn't talked about anything, and I hadn't wanted to know up to that point. So we began to talk, and nothing got decided that day, but the, the door just kind of became opened. And as time passed, eventually Drew came in. Um, Bill kind of, as Bill began to look at and evaluate the, the structure of personnel that he was interested in and some of the opportunities that may be there, we began to discuss what that might look like. And I felt like that was something that God was doing and God was at work and that uh, that was something that I felt like I could do, a way that I could serve and, and help here at PCBC. Wasn't what I expected. I feel like the last few years have taught me uh, that God's ways are not our ways, right? Uh, but I don't know that there's a way that God could have put anything together any more clearly and, um, uh, than he did. I, I don't think I, I, I said this to the staff. I, I don't think if I had an army working for me, I could have orchestrated all the pieces quite like God did. I didn't know what the future was, but I didn't expect it to be that. But uh, God has been so good, and this feels like the right place. And it's the right place. It's been the right place for my family. And, and so I'm grateful to be here this morning to talk about next-gen ministry. And with that in mind, I want us to look at a passage that I think is appropriate as we think about the next generation and how we as a church can come alongside families to reach, to teach, and equip the next generation for Christ. So let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Our sermon title this morning, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Jesus Loves the Little Children. Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15 say this, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for, such, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. I know these are probably familiar words to the vast majority of us, words that sit fine with us. They're not unusual. Um, they seem right. But you need to understand that when Jesus spoke these words into the world that he spoke them, he was saying something that was socially and culturally radical. This was not the way that the world around him looked at and treated children. Here's what one uh, historian says about that time. He says this. He says that in ancient Greece and Rome, children were considered non-persons. Ancient society was organized in what we can visualize as concentric circles. At the center were freeborn adult males. They had the most value. Other people, were val other people were valued depending on how similar they were to that model. Women, foreigners, slaves, and children. Literature from the classical world describes children in tones of contempt, using adjectives like weak, fearful, and irrational. This demeaning of children had concrete consequences. Not surprisingly, it led to a cold and callous view of children. Abortion was widespread. Unwanted children were abandoned or exposed, left outside to die of hunger, to be devoured by animals. Children were treated roughly. It was considered normal to beat them. 
In Rome, fathers even had the legal right to kill their children for any reason. A negative view of children also contributed to a low view of women. The very fact that women were more involved in child rearing and more likely to develop emotional attachments to children was taken as a sign of weakness and vulgarity on their part. He sums up, children and slaves were the father's property, just material objects. To a very large extent, he would treat his wife, his children, and other household members as he pleased, without any fear of legal consequences. That included the right to sexually abuse their slaves, both male and female, adult and children. Brothels specializing in sex slaves, including children, were legal and thriving businesses. Abandoned babies were often rescued and forced into sexual slavery. Romans who owned young slaves even hired them out to brothels. It was the world into which Jesus declared, let the little children come to me. Jesus' words were radical. They were not popular. They were not accepted. And that's what he says. I have two points for you this morning as we think about this passage. And here's the first one. This seems pretty self-explanatory. It's pretty straight to the point. We are to value and care for children. We are to value and care for children. Even as I think about Jesus, even the Jewish context in which he was, as we think about the Greco-Roman world in which they were, they were present, even the disciples, it's just so striking, isn't it, that the disciples are so far away from the heart of Jesus in this passage. Even they are. I mean, over and over in the Gospels, we see this, don't we? That Jesus, his feet are anointed with this expensive, expensive perfume and oil by this woman as an act of love and devotion. And all Judas has to say is, man, we could have fed a lot of poor people with that money. That wasn't Jesus' reaction. Jesus rebukes Judas for that answer. Jesus is touched. He's blessed. He's amazed at what that woman does for him. The blind man Bartimaeus on the road to Jericho. Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And yet the disciples are just trying to move Jesus through the crowd. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't listen to him. Jesus hears him, and Jesus stops. The same is true here. The disciples rebuke these parents for bringing their children to Jesus, this rabbi, to bless them. They're so far away from the heart of Jesus so far away. And listen, when I read a passage like this, let's be honest, I have a lot more in common with the disciples than I do Jesus. I do. That's me in the story. That's us mostly in the story. So even Jews, despite having a bit of a different worldview even than much of the Greco-Roman culture in which they existed and which they lived alongside, still, still don't get where God is coming from. They're still not in touch with the heart of God. And we see that in this passage. As Jesus says, let the little children come to me. We are to value and care for children. Listen, the church got it. And they got it quick. From the first generation after the apostles, we see the example of how God's people, of how the church lived out the words of Jesus here faithfully. 
Even in ancient Rome, in, in <clears throat> the 60s AD, even when at great risk to their own life, they would come out of hiding in the night to walk through the streets and to pick up the babies that Roman families would leave just to be devoured by the animals. And they would take them back down into the catacombs with themselves, and they would raise them. We see this example throughout church history. John Chrysostom, a church father in the fourth century, he said this, let everything take second place to the care of children, our children, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Orphan care, education, all of those things for children were things that were initiated by the church. Why? Because they knew what Jesus had said in Matthew 19. 13 through 15. If you're not familiar with the story of George Mueller, you should get familiar with the story of George Mueller. He was a Christian in England in the 1700s, and he ran an orphanage. He ran an orphanage that connected with and ministered to over 100,000 children over the course of his life. If you've never read George Mueller on prayer, you should. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit. You really should. But George Mueller spent his life in England caring for those that no one wanted, caring about children, concerned about those children that were neglected and needed help. The church has a long-standing history of caring about children. Let the little children come to me. I think this is something, quite frankly, that I'm excited about as I think about our church. I think there's a lot of things our church does well here. We've kind of put our money where our mouth is and said, listen, we want to create space to minister to children here at our church. That's the last big building project we did. Some things you may not know about. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But we've got a really, really thriving weekday preschool that not only is something that brings value and brings something to those that may be a part of our church, but many of the people that are involved in it are, are part of our community. It's a way for us to bless our community and care for children. What we're doing with this new parenting services ministry, which I think is awesome is an opportunity for us to say, listen, we want to help you because we care about your child. I would say to you what I, what I think the apostle Paul would say at times in his letters, which is, you're doing well, but do better. Be excellent. Be excellent in these ways. Let us strive to be excellent in this area. I think Jesus would be honored by that. It's what the church is committed to. It's what it's been committed to. It's what we're committed to. Let's continue to be even more excellent in our commitment to valuing and caring for children. Here's point number two. We are to learn from children what true faith looks like. We are to learn from children what true faith looks like. So not only are we to care for and value children, we are to learn from children what true faith looks like. Again, this is a radical teaching from Jesus. Because even the Jewish audience that was around him, even if they, even if they didn't completely devalue the life of children, they certainly wouldn't have looked at it as something that needed to be emulated something that we can learn from. I'm going to rabbit trail for just a minute here. It's amazing how God has created this universe that everything in it, even all the relationships that we have, they speak to who he is. It's a beautiful world that he's created. 
It's an amazing universe that he has designed. And all of it reveals him to us. As you think about the relationship of marriage, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that, that while marriage has, is important socially and culturally in establishing the families, the foundation and bedrock, bedrock of society, even beyond that, there's a mystery to it that goes deeper than that. To use C.S. Lewis's language in the Chronicles of Narnia, deeper magic, so to speak, when it comes to marriage. And that is that it teaches us about Christ and the church. That's why God gave us marriage, first and foremost, so we would learn about us and Jesus, fathers and sons. We learn about what? We learn about the Father and the Son in Trinitarian union. We learn about him, and the same is true as we think about children. He's created this stage of life that teaches us about us and God. And so we're to learn from this stage of life. This station of life, there's something to teach us about faith. Go with me to Matthew 18. Turn over just a page. Just a page. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 19 is not the first time they've heard this from Jesus. The disciples, they're still not getting it. Look what he says here in these verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he says. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says something very specific as it relates to this idea of childlike faith. What does he say? He says humility. What does it mean to have childlike faith? What does it mean to come to God like a child? It means to be humble. Well, what's humility? I give you one word that we're going to talk about this morning. What does humility look like? It looks like dependence. It looks like dependence. We depend on God. Well, what is dependence about? I'm going to give you two more words. Here's the first one. Prayer. Prayer. See, there's something implicit in prayer that says, I need your help. I need your help. I need you to do something for me that I can't do on my own. I need your help. Think about the opposite of humility. What is the opposite of humility? It is pride. And pride, if it is anything, is what? It is independence. It is saying, I know the right way. I don't need your thinking. I know the right way. I don't need your way. I'm going to do it my way. Pride, if it is anything, it is independence. And we were not designed to live and function independently. That's where brokenness and sin came into the equation. So humility is dependence. And what does dependence look like in our lives? Let's start with prayer. Prayer is when we begin to see dependence in our lives. Let's come back to George Mueller for a second. If you, there's a famous story that relates to George Mueller where they have organized and gotten all the, all the orphanage children down at the tables and there's no food, no food in the whole building to feed everyone that morning. And George Mueller made a commitment early in his life. He said, I will never ask anyone for anything. I will only ask God. And that's the way he lived his whole life. 
faithfully. And so even when there, were cause to, there was cause to doubt, cause to, to question whether or not that's maybe the right approach to things, George Mueller was committed to that. So they began to pray. A few minutes later, a knock on the door came. It was the milkman. He had extra milk. He had extra milk. And then a few minutes later, it was the bread man. And he had extra bread. And before you know it, before the morning was over, everyone ate. Everyone ate. It's easy to listen to a story like that. I listen to a story like that, and I want to gloss it over and say, well, that's not for everybody. That may not be for me. But I walk away from that too quickly in dealing with the reality of what it is to depend on God and what it is to be committed to prayer. Listen, if we don't pray, communicate something. Communicates we think we can do it on our own. Communicates we think we can take care of it ourselves. Listen, apart from even just how we reconcile that and wrestle that out for ourselves individually, as a church, as a church corporately, there's a place for us to plan like we're in charge, but God forgive us. God, forgive us when we don't pray like he's in charge. When we don't pray like he's in charge. And unfortunately, that's not what we do. You want to know how dependent you are on God? A great place to start is look at your prayer life. Here's another word for you real quick. Obedience. Obedience. There is no command in the Bible that says, parents, obey your children, right? Much to the chagrin of our progeny, right? Yeah. But there is no such command because it doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't. It works the other way. Children, obey your parents. By the way, as you think about this idea of children, you think about, let's step back to this prayer aspect again real quick, independence. I mean, listen, think, think about a five-year-old. What's a five-year-old going to do if it needs to eat? Going to go out and get it itself? No. It is dependent on someone else to provide that. If your eight-year-old wants a new game system, are they going to be able to get that on, on their own? No. They need you or a grandparent, but you. It's this picture, childlike faith is this picture of dependence. Because children are dependent. They need help. They're also called to obey. How well they do that, that's a whole other conversation. They're called to obey. What does childlike faith look like? What does dependence look like? It looks like obedience. It looks like doing what God calls us to do. And so as we think about Jesus' words, as he likens faith, true faith, to being like a child, he tells us it looks like humility. And humility is dependence. And some of the ways we can see that is by being people who pray and lean on him and go to him and obey what he says. That's what childlike faith looks like. We try to flesh it out. Jesus has some profound and powerful 
and radical words for us in these few verses. We're to care for and value children, and we're to learn from children what true faith looks like. Listen, the world and culture that we live in, it's amazing how much it is beginning to look like and sound like and act like the Greco-Roman paganism that Jesus spoke these words into in the first century. In a culture and a world that has been ravaged by, by rampant divorce, by relational dysfunction and brokenness, by the celebration of children mutilating their bodies in the name of authenticity and freedom, let Putnam City Baptist Church, let the people of God be a place that gives light and hope and refuge to children. Let the little children come to me. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would strive to be excellent. Be excellent. In, in caring about and reaching this next generation. God, may we be faithful to raise up and disciple our children in the truth. Give us conviction, give us courage, give us compassion, give us everything we need to do that well, and give us a desire, God, to strive for excellence. And what Jesus has told us in Matthew 19, 13 through 15. God, we thank you that in our dependence on you, you have everything we need. You have everything we need. Thank you that you are a father who provides everything that we need. Pray that you would just draw our hearts to a place of repentance over depending on ourselves. I pray that we would hear your word this morning, God, and see the change that needs to take place in our own hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray.